KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program. Show about housing, land, state capacity, and much more. In the program, we have back on Derek Sagehorn. Derek is the author of California Housing Corporation, the case for a public sector housing developer with East Bay for Everyone. And he's here to talk about the case for social housing, both the abstract and also with a very real piece of legislation, AB 2053, here in California this year. We're also here to talk a little bit about UC Berkeley and trouble with sequel lawsuits. Without further ado, uh, yeah, let's just do things. So welcome back, Derek. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. So we've been covering a lot of different aspects of the world of uh, social housing, uh, you know, talking about efforts in Hawaii, talking about stuff going on in, uh, you know, basically the models in Europe and so on. But I mean, it is in the air because it does resolve a lot of problems. I mean, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, just in the last year, you were the author of a paper about the case for a California uh, social house housing builder. But uh I think before we get started about first kind of the ideas of social housing and, uh, you know, this actually existing bill that Alex Lee has presented and is out there, AB 2053, uh, let's talk about the actual existing social housing of a sort in California uh, today, which is, uh, you know, UC basically, you know, build social housing of a way. And uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, controversy in the air about uh, UC right now. So why don't, you, why don't you get into the news at the moment we're recording? A lot of news just dropped. Yeah, I mean, right now we have, uh, actually today, this morning, we found out that the California Supreme Court um, declined to intervene in a lower court, uh, like a trial court's injunction to bar um, UC Berkeley from increasing its enrollment. That's, uh, you know, they already potentially admitted thousands of students, so they're going to have to pull back those admissions for the next school year. And this um, this case is coming out of uh, the California Environmental Quality Act. It's uh, I, I believe it's called um, Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods versus the UC Regents. And basically argument by uh, one homeowner who lives next to campus, actually lives right next to Front Row, uh, Phil Bakavoy, um, is that the uh, UC did not um, study its enrollment increases in terms of the environmental impacts through CEQA. And because it didn't do that um, in the last 10 years, I believe that um, those enrollment impacts constitute a environmental impact that is a, needs to be studied and analyzed and potentially mitigated. And therefore uh, Cal needs to reduce its enrollment for the next, uh, uh, next school year, which is a, uh, you know, if you're a, a 18 year old or 17 year old or whoever who's applying for, to, to go to Cal, um, that's got to be a pretty upsetting thing to potentially lose your admission spot. Well, for the students, but I eventually just like the helicopter parents and all that, there's got to be so many. I mean, those people, they'll burn down the earth. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole college admit, admissions thing is its own uh, kind of insane um, structure and complex, but. Uh, it, it's certainly going to activate a lot of uh, parents who have been and students who are just like frustrated by the whole experience. The, the, the issue here is that like, you know, a growing UC campus or CSU campus, you know, it has impacts. Um, unfortunately, the California Environmental Quality Act, as it's kind of been 
evolved since it was first kind of enacted by the legislature in 1970, I believe. Reagan years, baby. It's that it's that like any change to the physical environment uh, constitutes a potential impact, and that that needs to be studied and mitigated. And so, a change to the environmental impact, uh, in environmental kind of physical environment, you know, that could be something of like building a bus stop or a, a bus lane. It could be something like adding info housing to, to students with zero parking so students could just walk to campus. Unfortunately, CEQA treats both sprawl out into the San Joaquin Valley and a five-story walk-up apartment in South Berkeley the same uh, in many instances. And they treat them both as net negatives for the environment. When just what we know about climate science and emissions is that one is far more superior than the other. And just in general, like, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, people who are really tapped in only kind of hear the bad things about CEQA. I mean, it must, there must be like, if you had to give it like its strongest case, what are successes? Like CEQA stopped a bunch of like people just dumping oil into, you know, the ground and all. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's really unfortunate that something which should be so good seems to be doing so much wrong now but like if if you were to say like what are the important parts to keep what sequa actually does right yeah i think what sequa sequa actually does especially in our kind of our rural agricultural mountain communities sequa does a really great job of preventing environmental degradation just by kind of you know in these places where there's there are fewer people but you know the interest of industry or potential polluters is much higher you know people are not looking to build 10-story buildings in uh, Modoc County because the demand simply doesn't exist for it. What they're looking to do is build logging roads and um, do, you know, excavation and mining in, you know, in the Inland Empire, put up logistics centers that increase carbon emissions, degrade the air quality of these communities. Those are the places where CEQA does a great job, actually. I think I would say, like, the farther away you get from existing urban centers, the better CEQA is generally. It's when we get into the urban centers where there are more potential CEQA litigants and oftentimes CEQA litigants who have uh, graduate degrees or JDs who can kind of like create the paper trail to justify these lawsuits or at least the threat of them to get what they want. That's when CEQA starts to fall down in my mind. And so in my mind, the reforms to CEQA is going to be like reducing the barriers for, for especially for housing, for low vehicle miles traveled projects, yeah. like exempting or streamlining CEQA to be like, about a narrow set of categories. Like if you're going to do any environmental analysis, it's going to be a very narrow set. It can't be views. It can't be traffic congestion, which has actually been abolished recently. Like it can't be, um, you know, water supply or, or whatnot, because we know that like, just from a st- fundamental standpoint that like those impacts are much less in an urban infill environment than they are uh, in rural or suburban sprawl. So just reducing the VMT and then like making it, there was a bill a couple of years ago from Senator Scott Wiener, which uh, exempted a number of like projects like bus lanes and protected bike lanes and sidewalks um, from um, CEQA review. And so stuff like that as well, like, the, you know, the low carbon. And I would even say, I'd like to see some additional CEQA exemptions or streamlining for something like, a rail project um like I, I would rail projects are really big and they could be potentially impactful so i still think we need some level of analysis there but the idea that we need to spend a billion dollars on an environmental document for link 21 the second trans bay tube i mean that just kind of speaks to like you know increasing our decreasing our mode share 
for through rail is going to be like one of the biggest things we can do to fight climate change. And that we that we have we've layered so much costs onto a rail project, while uh, highways and freeways are basically they've they've mastered the art of getting those projects through with minimal compliance, environmental compliance costs. I think it just speaks to a fundamental imbalance. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the kind of way that things move is, you know, you get more of these exemptions for stuff like, oh, of course, this we do this all the time and it's good. Like, this is under the umbrella of you can get away from CEQA. But also, can you put more stuff in the blast radius? Like, I, I know, like, if it's like an existing parking lot, if it's an existing highway, it seems like it's weird. Like, as long as it exists, there's nothing. I remember, like, that was a big thing in San Francisco the other year is they were, like, trying to move, like, this big like, existing parking lot and change it to, like, a new uh, like supermarket or something and they blocked it up for Sequa because it would add VMT but like the parking lot is still being used it seems like that's the problem and like stuff too like the, the Ultima Pass just being yeah. filled up with people every day like this is an environmental catastrophe can't we do something under Sequa to stop this or something I don't know right and I think that's I think that's the the frustration is that it's there's all types of environmental existing environmental degradation in our communities in terms of uh, brownfields or toxic sites or lead paint or just like car sewers and the lack of you know alternatives to driving, all these things. Um, but you know our existing environmental institutions do not proactively or do go after that or, or change it. And if to the, if they do, it's very weak. It's a very weak kind of uh, intervention. So just to say that like we, we were, we've CEQA was conceptualized in the era of like freeways and large dam and uh, aqueduct construction. And it hasn't, um, it hasn't been updated to say like, well, we're not, we're not going to build new freeways anymore. Like we all, I think we should, I think we would all have some consensus around that. But we should be you know, delivering more bus lanes and bike lanes and rail projects and infill housing. And we haven't necessarily seen, it's been chipped away at, but we haven't seen the type of comprehensive change and shift that is necessary. And also, you know, reducing the cost of, of that urban infill, reduce, you know, if we can reduce the compliance, both compliance time and fiscal costs of of sequel compliance for urban info projects and transportation projects, that's going to make suburban sprawl less profitable. Yeah. And that will, you know, you know, hopefully bankrupt the suburban sprawl industry. So that, I mean, it's, it's all, it's all part of it. And, but I don't think we've necessarily seen the movement yet to take that on. I mean, I mean, this, it seems like if weird people can find novel ways, like no one thought a couple of years ago, you can like stop the number of increase of Berkeley students. But uh, this, you know, Phil Bocavoy guy did. I mean, this guy's like, he's already famous in East Bay, right? Yeah. I mean, I, um, he's, he's somebody, even when I was at Cal, uh, as an undergraduate, he was him and Dean Metzger were the two guys that we're waging a, a guerrilla war against students, um, trying to, uh, you know, ban them from um, opening, you know, like student serving restaurants or um, trying to slow down kind of um, safety projects in the area, you know, obviously calling the cops constantly right. on people having parties, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, he's been infamous for a while um, and I've seen him oppose upzoning plans for student housing in Berkeley as well. Um, and, you know, he's he's threatened to sue under CEQA to stop those as well. So it's it's not an isolated incident. 
Uh, this is we've we've basically created a system that empowers people like him to file these lawsuits. Um, ultimately, I think I mean UC has the discretion to go recirculate this environmental impact report and do some of the analysis that's required. So ultimately, I think UC will be able to increase their uh, enrollment again. But it's just we've created this such a like such a laborious pro process where. Um, you know, and I think this is just like one last point on this is like, I do think that like the fact that we have these basically static UC admissions relative to population, I really do think that is connected to the failure of uh, affirmative action, um, the reintroduction of affirmative action last in uh, 2020. I can't remember what proposition that was, but ultimately, if you want to kind of reallocate or redistribute these, you know, you know, these are really highly coveted admissions to UC and CSU, the existing people within groups, demographics that get these UC admissions slots, they're going to perceive any change as zero sum as long as UC and CSU admissions are perceived as static, as yeah. they're not going up relative to population. So, no, for anybody who wants to see, you know, uh, a UC Berkeley that is more reflective of the Bay Area of the state of California, like you should be supporting, you know, increasing enrollment because that will create the politics for increasing Black and Latino and um, Southeast Asian representation within these admissions. Because otherwise, you know, the status quo, which is basically white and East Asian people who dominate these slots, they will have, they will, and you know, those people tend to vote at higher rates. Um, they will have no interest in, in uh, changing how UC admissions um, are, are calculated and, and whatnot. So I, I really do think that you need that growth to help kind of redistribute the pie. Yeah, it took me a long time, I think, to kind of just realize that everyone like fights over like, oh, who gets the different rungs in the meritocracy ladder? But the fact we have this artificial scarcity is really the core problem. We don't need to feel like there's only so much room for status, especially in a place that, you know, has in theory the room to grow like Berkeley. But on top of it, like I think just an overall thought is if a guy like Phil hates college students so much, like there are plenty of cities that aren't college towns. Like it's just so freakish to me that a guy like that would do that to himself. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think he graduated from UC Berkeley law school. Um, and so he probably just stuck around. Uh, but like, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like people want the amenities of a college town, but they don't want college students to be there. Um, and so it's, you know, like the, the fact that there are a bunch of like Berkeley has a really a lot of different types of restaurants. It has lots of culture. Um, it's relatively affordable uh, in terms of not, <laughs> not the home prices, but like the restaurants and the cultures yeah. are relatively affordable. But those things would not exist without uh, the university. Um, and so, like, I, I think it's it's one of those things where. It's the only places you get like yuppie aesthetics without yuppie spending. So like you get kind of, you know, it's it, of price levels, exactly, at least for consumption, yeah. cons consumer goods. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, I go get my, I, have, I go get my haircut in Southside Berkeley because it's much more affordable than any of the places that I, I might go to in Oakland. Yeah. There you um, go. So, yeah. Well, so it's okay. We were talking about kind of exemptions for CEQA and like that is one of the things that's in the pipeline uh, is SB 886. This is basically like the call it social housing or whatever, but student housing by UC would be essentially would be out of the CEQA zone. Yeah. So this is a bill um, that was kind of developed by some uh, students, uh, student activists at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and so they, you know, 
UC Santa Cruz has, has really struggled with scarce housing for undergraduates and grad students and, you know, and just general population for a long time. The, you know, every, every fall, there's like a story about how, you know, there are those social networks, Facebook pages and, and whatnot, asking if somebody can sleep on a couch, uh, if somebody will pay $200, $300 a month to sleep on a couch or in a garage or, or wherever it is. And, you know, so there's a high rates of student homelessness. Um, there's really high cost burdens. And UC has, um, you know, they have a zoning exemption. And so, you know, where where they are moving forward with projects and other campuses, you know, they're building large scale projects. They're building, you know, what you might say is like modernist style, 20 story buildings. Um, and they're, you know, developing like, you know, students don't need a lot of like, you know, amenities outside of like maybe a somewhere to, to wash their clothes and maybe it's a pool table or foosball table. So like they're building in mass in places like UC San, Di- uh, UC San Diego, UCLA, but in places like Santa Cruz and Berkeley, where you have a very empowered um, kind of uh, pastoral environmental movement, even with that zoning exemption, they are frozen. UC Santa Cruz and UC Berkeley are for moving forward with projects due to the threat of sequel litigation. Yeah. Um, and, and how that might play out. So, I mean, the same thing is true in Berkeley with some of the proposed housing there. Santa Cruz is having the same problem. Um, you see San Francisco just had a, is having a, has a lawsuit filed against their hospital expansion and housing proposal there, uh, filed by uh, Calvin Welch, oh, Council of Community Housing Organizations. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is a persistent problem. And I, I wouldn't say it's an issue as much in, you know, some of the more high growth, parts of the state um like you know i'm sure merced needs more housing but really this is where the coastal ucs are just kind of being hit by sequel lawsuits or threat of sequel lawsuits um and then you know in some cases to the extent they do get something approved it is being um preemptively reduced in height or density or they're or they're adding more parking that is necessary to mollify Mm. the concerns of potential sequel litigants so all to say that this is definitely a problem and you know i see i really do see the 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 rationale for this bill yeah it's 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 kind of i mean people might say it's uh too much power but like i i I wouldn't but like outside of sequa sequa is basically the only break on uc land use right because they are not governed by local zoning which honestly if you take away sequa and then it just like can build whatever it wants i'd say nice but uh, is that is that yeah. incorrect to say is are there other breaks yeah i mean that's i mean there's a there's a democratic break of going to the uc regents and sure. asking them to stop the project yeah. um there's also um you know I, I i would say that's generally correct um that you that sequa has been the, the the break on projects i think there are some legitimate criticisms in terms of you do want to kind of keep that break for um stadium construction like you see stadium construction you see office space hotels like those are the type of things where ucs have been better at getting those things done because they have more um donor or institutional support where ucs have struggled is the student housing i think that's why this the the fact that this is narrowly tailored to student housing really does make sense um 
and it is addressing that need. Yeah, I've always had like the, the backdoor angle. It's like, okay, what if you just like allowed UC to do everything? So like UC is building every, like they just become like HDB in America or something. But I mean, like I think, yeah, start with its real purpose. Start with student housing. Yeah, I mean, I, there is there is things to like worry about. People complain that, you know, UC doing stuff is, I think, feels so nice when everything is so stagnant. But, you know, unchecked power is problematic. People say UC is far from a perfect landlord. If you're a tenant at UC, you can have, you know, the, their power isn't really checked. And I think these are the kind of things we need to kind of make sure we deal with with more comprehensive, uh, you know, social housing. Um, and on that topic. Uh, hold on. I Before you get there, I, that was a really good point. With the bill, the one thing that I would say that I'd like to see uh, the bill author, Scott Wiener, amend is uh, to basically institute tenant demolition protections on UC projects going forward uh, in the same way that SB 330, SB 8 required a one-to-one replacement of uh, rent-controlled or below-market-rate housing or housing occupied by low-income people, relocation assistance, and a right to return because uh, Berkeley uh, recently developed some new office or, uh, office space or uh, teaching space, and they demolished eight units of housing. And it took a lot of organizing for the, the uh, rent-controlled tenants in the Walnut Street building to uh, get um, at least some relocation assistance there. So I think that's a worthwhile amendment to make to help per- make sure that UC is making people whole, or at least trying to make people whole, when they do projects that could potentially uh, involve residential evictions and demolitions. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's I, I feel very privileged insofar as like I had a real like right to return demo protections as a grad student back at Stanford. They, they demolished the dorm I was in or like kind of took it out of commission and they uh, basically just automatically switches all over to the uh, not the Munger cube but the different thing that the the crazy Munger guy designed and before they put us in more permanent stuff and like I mean that's a dignified way a real system should work I mean I think unfortunately that UC is so under like they can just slide people around the fact that so many people are housing precarious as a student is just abhorrent yeah 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 so that would be my one um, my, my one note and I hope that um that can be part of the kind of the deal making there. But ultimately, we do need something like this CEQA exemption to move UC housing forward. Yeah. So, uh, you mean, so as I was saying a second ago, uh, yeah, but let's talk more broadly. Let's talk about just comprehensive social housing. Uh, maybe first off, before we talk about the actual bill, uh, maybe just talk about when you wrote uh, the for East Bay for Everyone, uh, the case for a, you know, social housing. Uh, what's what's the title again? You know, you know, the paper. The case for a public housing developer, yeah. uh, I believe, I can remember. Um, California Housing Corporation is what we called it. And so, yeah, no, the, the pitch there was like, you know, we have this large shortage of housing and it's especially for low and moderate income people. And, you know, ultimately, whether or not you think filtering works, filtering takes a long time and that we, we need to be you know, rapidly expanding our production of housing for low and moderate income households. Right now, our existing program for that, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, is pretty limited in terms of its application to moderate income households. It's really, to the extent that moderate income housing is produced there, it's pretty incidental. Um, and for low income housing, you know, there in the Build Back Better bill, there are a number of uh, tweaks and changes that would boost the production of LIHTC housing. But ultimately, like Paul Williams wrote a really great blog post about this. Ultimately, like the LIHTC program is 
subject to its production is like tied to the corporate tax rate. Yeah. Um, and such that like, if we wanted to meet our current housing needs to the state of California, we would need to boost the light using light tech. We need to use the boost, the corporate tax rate at the federal level um, and the state level to something like 50% where it's like, now it's like 25 or 30. I can't remember exactly what we need to boost that. And then for 50 years uh, to produce the light tech needs for housing production and preservation for 2021. So just in terms of like the existing program is just insufficient. Like we're not, there, like there's no way that we can meet our needs just using light tech, even if we boosted light tech. Um, so we need to look outside of that system for different ways. And so the idea behind the paper was like, you know, why don't we start thinking about doing a public ownership, um, public led development, where we have a state entity or a local entity like owned by a city or a county or a regional entity that goes ahead and just like builds these units, uses, um, you know, puts its own equity in to the in, into the development, uses bonds or, or um, private debt to pay for the rest, um, and then uses mixed income approach, right? Has the have low, moderate, and even market rate, or, you know, I, it's called, I think, cost-based rents, um, to help pay for the development instead of just restricting it purely to uh, low-income uh, renters and, and homeowners. And so with that in, in mind, you know, the pitch was like using the kind of like the large scale of public, the public sector, we could kind of go around uh, and do something different from the LIHTC system. Um, you know, they're going to, the low-income housing tax credit is going to continue to exist. They're going to continue to especially focus on like the deeply affordable, extremely low and very low income sector, which I think is necessary because oftentimes those people in those homes, like they need services, they need project-based vouchers, they need um, a lot more uh, investment and that's great. But also we need to be thinking about how we can scale up and produce that, like for the people who are making like between 60 and 120% AMI, like we need to build a lot more of that housing. And there's no reason that those those interests between low and moderate income households need to be in tension. You know, we we can build housing for both groups um, and then we can, um, they can benefit it from it, both from a, like a kind of a, a security standpoint um, and resiliency standpoint, but also from kind of a social integration standpoint. So, so if, if, if someone's going to take the opposite, let, let's say this is a pure Murby market urbanet, urbanist mindset, and they say, it's like, well, I, I, I don't trust that stuff. I, I want to see basically just unleash land use through zoning restrictions being taken away. And then sure, you need some vouchers, but you don't need a public houser. Like, what, what, what's your response to people who feel like, this is a distraction from zoning issues. Like why, why, why doesn't that resolve everything? Um, I mean, first of all, like, you know, East Bay for everyone and a lot of the other groups that are supporting AB 2053, we all spent a lot of time working on land use and zoning. So I would, uh, I probably more than your theoretical Murby uh, in terms of supporting those type of things. So, uh, you know, there's no tension in my mind there. Second, um, you know, there's, there are two issues in terms of the production um, of the private market. One is that we just have a cyclical a business cycle that um, where, you know, if, if uh, the economy falters um, or if it slows down, we're going to see uh, just reductions in home building. And that's just, that's been true for, you know, a very long time. The need for shelter doesn't go down in a recession. Like if anything, it goes up. Yeah. So, California is in such a hole in terms of housing production 
why would we just seed that the private market is going to build um, 20%, 30% of what it was doing in the boom years? Like, why would we just like say like, oh no, it's okay. We'll make it up later. That just, it's not, a, it's not a healthy way to structure your economy where we have to, there's a flurry of, a, of activity during the, the boom years. And then it lays fallow the, you know, the workers, the, um, the industrial production that we have in terms of building, um, you know, the component parts and materials, all these things are just laid fallow during a recession. It's like, we just need to smooth it out. And that's why having that public investment is so important. Um, the second thing is, the the how like land use freeing up land use restrictions and constraints is important, but like in a lot of communities, especially in the Central Valley and North State Inland Empire, is that there isn't necessarily the market demand for the type of housing that people need. You know, there isn't the demand. There the the market is not producing in in Fresno and Stockton the low cost walk up garden apartments that a lot of renters. Would, would find really helpful. Uh, there's actually a really interesting report from the Department of Housing and Community Development that came out yesterday. And one of the things it shows is like the cost burdens for uh, renters in California, they're really concentrated in the Central Valley, in North State, in the rural parts of California. And so like the idea that like w- the market is going to uh, produce housing in these places that are are very poor, right? They have very low incomes. The construction costs are probably lower, but not so low that that like it becomes feasible. And then also just like the kind of the construction development, the historic construction development patterns and industries in those places are really fixated on single detached single family homes, which is not good for our environment. Uh, we need to kind of come up with a better way of building in some of these places. Like there's no reason that a, a rural place can't have townhouses or more garden apartments those you know maybe a five-story building is not necessarily useful there but we can make a a better land use pattern uh and development in these places through public investment so just to say that like you know we're, we're facing two problems right the hot market in the coastal counties and then the the basically too low of incomes in the um in the inland counties and it, uh, the public sector developer can help in both yeah, I, I think when you talk about like the counter cyclical things, you could say like it's like there's normal times and not normal times. And but really, I mean, I think that kind of understates it insofar as like look at what happened to construction industry since 2008. Like the entire sector rotted out. People left the industry and they didn't come back. And if you talk about like kind of modern industrial policy it isn't just like oh everything takes care of itself you just need to kind of like help during the sags really like anyone who's serious it is the like is the public sector duty to shape the capacity when you talk about like we have people who if they're doing anything else it's, it's all exurban sprawl we need to facilitate like efficient builders in like nice like functional cheap apartments how do we do it you, like you, it's a chicken and egg problem. You need to facilitate it by actually giving like support and pressure and stability, handle risk. And like, I think like if, if you do this right, we would have a lot more people working in cheap construction. And we're like, we just say, Oh, the private, the private sector handles that. And it's not. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is that like, in addition to uh, the, the time and the, and the space of development is that, um, this could be an opportunity to really kind of uh, push forward on uh, industrialized construction techniques. 
Um, the things that, you know, California and the U.S. as a whole, basically, is we're, we're still building buildings the way we did in 1910 for the most part with a balloon frame construction for single family homes and townhouses. And then, um, you know, we've made some slight improvements in terms of the code for um, apartments. And then that's why you're getting the kind of uh, the four over ones and the five over ones. But there are we're not necessarily in the, seeing the construction productivity gains there because everybody, all the existing industry players are just happy to kind of do the same thing that they've always been doing. And the private sector, for the most part, has just been happy to get by with what, what they have. To the extent that the light tech industry um, is as a kind of a, as something as an industry that receives public subsidy, they haven't necessarily been very good about controlling their development costs. Um, and that's a function of the fact that the development fees for light tech developers are a percentage of the total development costs, which means mm -hmm. there's no, like, you're actually incentivized to increase your costs rather than decrease them. That's, that's really funny. So all this, and, and then the other part of it is that for light tech is that for each light tech project, it's an individual, uh, each project is an individual development, a bespoke product where you have a, you know, a light tech investor, you have a local developer, typically a nonprofit corporation that comes together, they get their, their planning team, their project manager, their architects, their structural engineers, their uh, all their other kind of engineers and 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 technical uh, specialists, and then they get their construction manager and their general contractor, their subs, and this whole team comes together to produce seventy units of like fifty percent AMI housing. That is really important that we get it right. But at the end of that project, they all just explode and they're scattered apart, and that project. That project team never works with each other again. Yeah. And the, we never get the learning of continually serially producing housing between a project team where we can actually start to control costs and bend that cost curve down. And because the light tech is like no individual person, player or the owner, which is the light tech, you know, um, capital that's coming in, there's no incentive for any of them to kind of um, come together and repeat or, or do mass purchasing or bulk orders or anything like this. To, or or use technology. There's you no know, emergent interest in things like volumetric modular construction um, and maybe some prefab walls. But we're not seeing you know one technology which is like volumetric modular construction, like the factory OS in Vallejo, yeah. or Vive, which is in uh, Fremont or Union City, which is prefab walls. Like one te technology is not going to make the difference, right? What we need is to shift our structures to say that like no, like we're going to have an entity that's producing low income and moderate income housing that is going to focus on bending that cost curve down, not on the backs of the consumers of the housing, right? The tenants, we're not going to build lower quality housing uh, in terms of like the Dakota or not, and not on the back of workers, the people who are building it, we're going to pay them uh, a living wage, but we want to squeeze the suppliers. We want to squeeze the general contractors and say, what can you do to be more efficient and productive in this this sector? And how can we get the processes, including things like prefab and maybe just modular construction or whatever it is, to to squeeze that unit cost down so we're not having these exploding costs per unit that we continue to see, you know, everything from market rate to LIHTC to permanent supportive housing projects. We need that large state capacity to come in here and say, we're going to invest in processes and technologies that can bend that cost curve. Because right now we have all these private players that are not, there's nobody, nobody's going to coordinate or collaborate to, to, to kind of bend this cost curve. Everybody's just trying to get what they can. Yeah. And, and I think in general too, like that sounds like popular 
politics to say like you're disciplining developers like is not what people want to you know if, if you build well if you build the whole structure to drive a race to the bottom as far as developer yeah. edges like that's the dream yeah i mean if we're going to do a race to the bottom it should be between the owners of contracting firms and not between workers that, yeah, i think exactly that's the shift exactly um What's really cool is I, I think ultimately what I'd like this to get to, and this is the real pipe dream, is to do something, what they're doing in like Sweden and Germany uh, and Finland is where you have basically like um, a, a framework agreement where you say, I'm opening up this design for a five-story um, a public housing project. And if you get the design, you're going to be locked into a five-year contract with two other general contracting firms and their teams where you're just going to have a, a price. What, what is it? $400,000 per unit. And of this particular design, a five-story building that's X, Y, and Z accessibility and other standards. And you're just, we're just going to buy as many of these as I can from yeah. in that five-year period. And after that, we'll set up a new procurement and do another one and do another one. And they've been able to bend their cost curve uh, down by 25% just by doing stuff like that. And because, but because they're working in collaboration, right? You have the, the public housing authority, basically the public housing trade group for Sweden um, is, is leading this, right? And you have the uh, public housing trade group for Stockholm, like uh, basically the municipal housing company for Stockholm doing the same thing. They're putting out a procurement and we're going to just get all of the units from this two or three people. And they're just going to guarantee the price. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're, they're creating that competition and they're creating, it looks like really great quality units. So you know, if you get a chance, check out combo house with a K and the, you know, those are the type of things that if you have state, not only state, like, but like coordinated activity between public housing groups um, and the state, you can really, as you say, force that race to the bottom where, you're forcing the contractors to really compete on quality and price. Um, and it's not just a, you know, like one-offs, which is what we do now. And I think one more, one more case to make is also the financing side of stuff, which is to say that this is always like, you know, said as like an anti Yimby, anti urbanist, you know, like thing. It's like, Oh, if housing prices decline, then they'll stop financing them and then everything will dry up. And like, well, the, the first thing is, well, I mean, having housing be flat is better than it increasing all the time, which is what we're seeing now. So I will take housing being flat for starters. But there is a point there. When everyone is seeing housing like prices decline, there will be a deflationary slack happen. And unless you have a vigorous like public sector uh, push to actually have a buffer stock to keep that going down, you can't really drive the price down if there is an external, if they're like within a city, because there isn't like external resources that be locked up because it's it's constrained. So like, I mean, absolutely. I, I think that if you really want to drive prices down, you need, you can't just push that string. You really need the public sector. Right. And, and that's, you know, the, and the public sector can benefit from reduced material costs, um, you know, subcontractors and general contractors are probably willing to, to, you know, take a smaller fee during a recession. Um, and then you're also, you know, you're not necessarily, I mean, the one downside is that if you're counting on some type of level of cross subsidization, you might need to kind of revise your pro forma, but otherwise, like, because you're not dependent on that profit, like trying to meet that profit yield for your investors, like 
you can move forward with projects. You don't, you know, it's it, the public is making that decision and it's not necessarily someone trying to hit their, uh, their yield target for a particular investment fund. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a real benefit of it. Um, and just to say that like, we, we have the, the, the tools to, to do this kind of stuff. I mean, we don't have them yet, but we, the, the tools are very you know clearly demonstrated in other countries. One interesting thing though, is like in terms of like that, um, I think it's just more healthier to have some type of public investment along these lines. Um, a really cool fact is that like Vienna and Austria have like just much um, lower um, uh, type of uh, cyclical price jumps and price uh, declines in their real estate market because they have this public sector that is buffet buffering the system. Um, if you don't have, if you, if you are simply relying on the private market and that private investment, um, you know, you're going to see the the money dry up and it comes back in and it dries up. But if you have consistent kind of, um, background, um, supply being added to the market, uh, it doesn't have to be gigantic. It can just kind of just be doing its thing. Um, that can really help, uh, at least stabilize some of the cyclicity that we see. Yeah, you can, you can definitely criticize around the edges of like federal agriculture policy, but like buffer stock policy of actually having a vigorous industrial policy, it does make sure that like there isn't huge spikes and declines in the cost of bread and so on in something which is ultimately related to like a fixed supply of farmland. And I'm, I'm yet to be pretty happy that we don't see people like abandoning their farms every couple of years when there's a recession. Right. So, uh, I mean, in the in the matter of, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, everything starts to resemble each other in this space. I mean, it reminds me of like what they call it with like uh, cancerization where everything looks like crabs as it evolves in different independent paths. But like, it's not surprising that what we saw in Hawaii and what we see with California now with AB 2053, you know, resembles the rest of kind of like world class, you know, social housing plans because, you know, it's the things that tend to work and so on. So... Uh, I mean, so as far as what we're talking about in this paper, I mean, we're seeing a lot of these same things in uh, AB 2053. So why don't you, why don't you talk about it? Yeah, I mean, AB 2053, it, it, um, you know, it, it really looks at producing both rental and, um, you know, limited equity homeownership opportunities. And I, I believe, you know, as written, it has a, that limited equity homeownership is a 99 year lease, which is similar to what uh, Senator Stanley Chang is proposing uh, for Aloha housing in Hawaii. Um, and I, I think that the important part is like, you need both, right? Like there's um, there's a strong demand for home ownership for people to have that type of security of tenure. But we also need to be aware, like we, there are some countries that like, that will build social housing mass or mass housing, if you want to call it that. Um, and they'll do it as home ownership, but they won't, uh, you know, limit the equity gains on it. And they're basically just giving away potential equity and they're squandering, um, you know, subsidy that could preserve affordability in the long term. So having, if you, um, you know, if you have a system that is pr- producing that limited equity home ownership for people who are not really looking to be in real estate investors who are, you know, just want a stable place to live. They can have some security of tenure. Um, they can have some wealth creation. I think it's a really important tool to have along with the rental, the rental side. Yeah. I mean, I think you see the downs. I mean, look at uh, China today. You know, they have basically public lands, but leases with no real oversight. And it's just a speculator's wonderland or something, you know? So, right. And so the, the, the AB 2053 has those two components. Um, you know, it, it also, you know, it specifies that this isn't just uh, building housing. It also could be the preservation of housing as well. And I'll say like, you know, 
looking at this bill and, you know, how, you know, if it passes or if it, some version of it passes in the future, like the preservation is going to be an important part of it because um, spinning up a large state agency like this is going to take some time. And the, you know, the preservation of, you know, filtered apartments and, and housing in um, our existing communities is it going to be a really good way for this project to start kind of getting its financial legs uh, underneath it, uh, uh, kind of dialing in the model, creating some stability for these communities. So the preservation is, is important part of it. Uh, and I think especially at the beginning, I think it will be important. But like the other part is like, yeah, we just need to build a lot. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get some pushback from um, some people who that, that are really interested in the preservation side um, that want, you know, a lot like the focus of, of some of these social housing ideas to be really rooted in preservation. Yeah, we saw that in like San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco, I think Los Angeles, there's some of that as well. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the, there are some nonprofits that also have this, this view. Um, but like, ultimately, like, we need to to preserve those filtered homes. We need to preserve the old light tech properties that are having their their deed restrictions that are expiring and their affordability that's going to expire. Like that can be an important part of it. But we have a housing shortage, and we need to build a lot more housing. And um, you know, for, for a lot of these same folks, they oppose upzoning, right? They oppose something like SB fifty because they don't want the private market. Uh, they're distrustful, or, or for a variety of reasons, don't you know, support these policies. But at the end of the day, it's like, we need to build more housing. So how, how, how is going to do, how are we going to do that? And who's going to do it? And if you object to the private market doing it, and you also object to the public sector doing it, I, I don't necessarily know where to go from there. Yeah, We have a lot of, we have a lot of kind of this either or stuff going on. I mean, I think it's a problem too. You have places like San Francisco where like we're facing many problems. There's normal shortage, but there's also a problem like, you have a bunch of old landlords that need to like, they're all about to die and they need to get off the market. And like, yeah, it would be nice if there's a nice off ramp for this because instead you have a lot of people who are lacking, like, cause they want to say, Oh, we want the mom and pop people who built it back in the early seventies to continue on. Like, like, but old mom and pops, like that's not really a scalable model. And like, I guess like they say, Oh, we all, it will be fine. Just as long as the mom and pops go off to some local approved nonprofit to own it. And then everything's perfect. It's like, one is okay that solves to some extent one problem but yes i mean what what determines the overall price of housing and it ultimately is it supply and demand i would say ultimately i don't care if you, what you call it it's the supply with how far you have to go before you can afford something you know call it the law of rent but basically drive to you qualify controls our lives and i don't know like they have no alternative model of like, if they don't believe we have a shortage, what do they believe? I don't know. It's just, it's, I think they got their own little pet problems in front of them and they just don't look at the bigger picture. They're not systems thinkers. So whatever. I mean, I, I definitely agree. We need to have off ramps to have like, to have more of these private things, not, you know, just fall off of their existing owners to go to people you know, imposing rack rents or whatever. But then secondly, it's, I mean, as a good Georgist, it's good to have the public sector having the capacity when you give it resources, because we can't do ad valorem taxes in California. This is a good way to 
get a lot of power. If you get a bunch of old properties, now you can redevelop it because you got public land. Yeah, I mean, you, you can you can not only can you uh, you know you start acquiring that public land and, and taking it off the market, but you also can like start kind of dialing in how these cross subsidies and you know this you know ownership structures and these resident councils that are also in the bill. You can start kind of like developing that, um, and so I think that's a, it's an important part of it. The other you know the other part of this is that like. You know, you have a um, an agency that is tasked with, in the bill at least, is tasked with um, meeting uh, meeting the gap basically between a city's uh, how much they've produced to their regional housing needs allocation um, and what what they haven't. Um, and so, I think it's a really good response to cities um, and the League of Cities that they're you know organized representative and defenders of local control. Who often say, you know, when we're talking about state level land use bills or, or legislation, is that like, you know, our city, Pasadena, isn't a developer, right? We don't build housing. Developers build housing. And well, we can change that for you. We can solve that problem. We can do it for you. We could even co develop it with you, Pasadena. Um, and so I do think it's important to kind of frame that in the sense that like every city, Every city in California, every jurisdiction in California has housing needs, and not all of them are necessarily necessarily being met right now uh, in, in the various income levels. And so, specifying that it's like, hey, cities, like if you don't want if you don't want the California Housing Authority to um, to build you know these projects in your community, go approve a bunch of light tech projects and a bunch of uh, market rate or mixed income projects to go meet your obligation. Otherwise, like we're going to go do it for you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a it's a learned helplessness. I mean, you might say it's cynical. When a place like Palo Alto says, oh, we love to build it. We're just like, the private developers won't do it the price we want. We can't, you know. It's They could either take charge, and, and they won't, but I think when you actually say the toolbox is here, we have a public developer, you can't say that you're a baby anymore. Like, either they just need to, like, say yes or no. <laughs> like, I don't know at some right. point. But, I mean, that is a problem, just so many. But even the big cities, like San Francisco is looking to have small sites acquisition type stuff and roll that up. But they're not they're not building big stuff. Everyone. Right. I mean, ultimately, it would be I think it would be it's important that we have cities like San Francisco or Berkeley or Oakland that are doing their own municipal housing companies or uh, firms or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I think those that's important, too, because. They they can you know they can leverage additional local resources. They have oftentimes existing land portfolios. Um, they you know are closer to the citizens and and you know if there's a particular need for particular neighborhoods, like they can be creative. Like I you know I I listened in on the uh, San Francisco Housing Stability Oversight uh, Commission. I think it was a couple weeks ago, and that was. Um, uh, Dean, the, the kind of the ballot measure, the Dean Preston champion. Yeah. And I was actually really impressed um, with some of the proposals, like to actually build stuff uh, for some of it. And you know, they're doing gap financing. Some of, some of the proposals are a little more baked than others. What, what I really liked about it was that it was reorienting a lot of these groups from, I think that's, that are, you know, correctly, they felt shut out of the kind of the light tech community development pipeline. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it goes to the mayor's office, you know, the, these eight, nine developers like compete for the funds and then they get it and there's no real kind of creativity there. And so I do think that some level of that like local strategy, I think is important because you can kind of come up with creative proposals that meet different needs. 
Um, but it's got to be oriented around building, like because we, especially San Francisco, it's like it's so dire how much, how under uh, under how much underbuilding they've done over the past forty years. So um, just yeah, I think like there are opportunities for you know something like CHA to collaborate, right? Because the I think the the issue is that especially for smaller cities that might want to do this themselves is that like they were not going to have the the tax tax revenue or the the capacity to hire all the full-time staffers to do the the planning the project management the design and like have that and why don't we just have a state level agency that can be a partner for a lot of these cities and co-develop them and i think that's ultimately where i think the bill hopefully can go is to like create a kind of a space where it can be a partner with the local governments that do want to create their own uh, municipal housing companies or social housing firms or whatever, and, and be, because that, like it's an, it's important it's important to just to meet that both that local and the state because we also don't want to leave Palo Alto on the hook, right? We don't want to be like we're only doing this for San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. We want to make sure that that we have a state level that is not beholden to parochial concerns for some of these exclusionary communities and we're actually building in those places as well the, the final thing that i just want to note is it's like for a place that has like a big public land asset um you know i think of places like san diego with their stadium there their former football stadium places like oakland with the former football stadium there um like these big kind of like former industrial or um military base stadium sites is that like the model that we've had for redeveloping those has been we handed that site, that public land over to a master developer, uh, Treasure Islands like this as yeah. well. And then that master developer funds the infrastructure, the what's called the horizontal infrastructure, right? The roads, the sewers, um, the um, divvies up the, the plots, and then basically like sells them or leases them, subleases them to other developers who will basically try to time the market with home sales or rentals and develop it in phases where we do like five or six phases of these just gigantic projects. I think the appeal of that in a lot of sense is like people want to, we can create the neighborhood from scratch. We can do all the things and we can like not piss off the neighbors. And I don't necessarily agree with that as a planning philosophy, but it has its place. The unfortunate thing for me is that like you look at other places in the world, like Singapore, or Denmark, or Finland, or Sweden, or Germany, or France is like they are uh, Austria. Like they're doing the same thing. They're they're having that same strategy, but it's a public led process, and we're not having this master developer who is basically soaking up all that land rent from timing the market. Yeah. And the public is the master developer, whatever that public entity is, and you know in. Copenhagen, it's the Copenhagen Port and Development Corporation. And Austria, there's another one that it's tied to their metro system. And so all to say that like we could have a public developer who could run that process and they could capture the rents from timing the market, or they could advance projects faster to, to meet the demand. Or they can be bolder. They can do stuff that like uh, like a developer is just like not gonna like they're gonna play it safe, you know, whereas you could really right. swing for the fences with a public developer. <laughs> right. So the just to say, it's like this is this is another situation where you know you look at Balboa uh, in San Francisco, Balboa Reservoir. I know there are some people who are frustrated, that, like you know they're doing a cross subsidies subsidized thing there, but the master developer is a private entity, and they're not necessarily going to be interested in developing or delivering those units on a on a quickly. They're interested in timing the market. So um, I think that's another 
an appeal of, of something that the AB 2053, the California Housing Authority, is that, you know, you can hand over a site to the state and like with a, you know, have some type of agreement and like, you need to do this and that and that in terms of community and all that, all that kind of stuff. But wouldn't it be much better for us to realize, you know, you could even have a joint land rent uh, agreement where the city gets 50% or 75% of the rents from, you know, delivering these units. Um, so just to say that, like, there's a lot of different applications for this and it can solve those types of problems where, you know, the Coliseum uh, in Oakland, where I live, that type is just languishing because basically no, there's no developer that sees the, the it's just too far away from their kind of market, um, you know, the, the investments uh, yields that they're looking to, to, to make for their investors. It's so far away from it. So that it's just going to languish for another 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and it's just what a what a waste of an asset. It's right on the bar. You know, it should be a great location. Right on bar. Yeah. It's you know right next to BRT, right next to the airport. Um, I say keep playing weather. ball there. Honestly, like it's a perfectly fine ballpark. Yeah. But, uh, no. So just to say this, like this is a type of thing where like we could be rather than than like letting like the investors for these master developers decide when we're going to develop these sites, we can do it ourselves, and then we can benefit. Yeah, I, I mean, I hear people say the Bubble Reservoir. It's like they say, like, oh, why don't you do more crop subsidization, go bigger, and even retain and retain public ownership at the end? And people say, well, to get financing, people are too scared. You need to actually. They were very contingent on you must privatize it. And that's the thing, like, if you actually instead are using public bonds to do the capital investments and then, like, basically self-sustaining operations afterwards, you know, that's a lot a lot bigger opportunities to do things that you don't feel like, oh, it's out of our hands. Like, nothing's out of your hands if you really will it enough. Right. And so we need to have that. We need to have that public sector capacity to do that because to, to become a, you know, the people who are master developers in these communities now they're, they're, they're development firms that have been around for 20 to 30 years, right? Like that have experience doing, uh, going through the processes and getting the approvals uh, for utilities and, and extending the roads and all that kind of stuff. And so that, that requires uh, public sector capacity. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, CHA or AB 2053 is going to deliver that uh, anytime soon, but you got to start, you got to start somewhere, right? Like, the the Copenhagen, um, their their port development authority, they started in 1991 or 1992, and they really didn't start delivering like their big projects until the late 2000s, yeah. uh, 2008, 2009. Um, so like you, you got to start developing this capacity um, in order to, to if you're ever going to you know, realize the gains. If you were just grading, like as a public builder that has been doing it for a while and doing stuff at scale, how would you rate UC as far as its ability to like really manage development well? I mean, it, it really depends across the campuses. Like UCLA is doing a great job in terms of holding down their per unit costs right now. Um, they, um, you know, they're expanding quite a bit. I think they're adding, they've added, they have, plans to finish up 10,000 units pretty soon. Um, and so that's, they're just realizing, they're taking full advantage of that planning, local planning exemption. Um, and they're just moving forward on on um, really lowering their construction per unit costs. Um, and it's competitive, like not only they're doing like low cost, but 
They're holding because they hold down their, uh, their their property is owned and the rents are set throughout the something like 18,000, 19,000 units or whatever they have. Um, the rents are set throughout that portfolio. So rather than like the rents being, you know, okay, this particular building has a construction loan of uh, $56 million that's outstanding. And therefore we're going to have to raise the rents higher on this one. They float those construction loans and, and that debt across the entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, you know, they're able to set their rents because they have such a large portfolio. They're able to set their rents 20% below the local private rental market. Um, and without deed restrictions, you know, they have an equity portion where like the UC is like taking an equity position, but that's, you know, that's like what any private investor would do as well, right? Like they, they take some percentage of a equity position and investment into the project. So I think they're doing a really great job. UC San Diego, I would say they're doing solid. Um, unfortunately, I think they're over parking from what I can tell they're over parking some of their yeah. developments, even though they're right next to the, uh, uh, the blue line extension for the the trolley there. Um, they're also, I think they're trying to also do, uh, they're kind of getting into the amenities uh, arms race a little bit with the rock climbing walls and, hmm. and whatnot. So, um, and then like you, you go, you know, further out and Santa Cruz is struggling. Like we said before, UC Berkeley is struggling. Uh, UCSF is struggling. That's some sequel issues. Um, Santa Barbara got in the whole Munger cube uh, controversy. Right. Yeah. And I think the overall cost. Yeah, was, I think Santa yeah. Barbara, Santa Barbara is another one that is a coastal one that is suffering kind of from yeah, being around a very, a bunch of very well-educated um, uh, lawyers and friends of lawyers uh, in the neighborhood kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it, it differs between campuses. You know, some campuses like Berkeley have been delivering the housing through public private partnerships where they have basically like they do the planning design but the construction is is turned over to a private contractor or like a a, a firm that that handles all of the like the manages the general contractor and all that kind of stuff and this, so they're having to uh, pay more for that um, and so I think that's a legit criticism is what can Berkeley learn from UCLA yeah. in, in terms of making their projects lower cost per unit because it's not like I mean UCLA is also next to a bunch of very rich people in Westwood right so like what, how can we uh, get the UCLA um, you know, capital pro- project uh, development team, like they need to go do a, a powwow with the rest of the, um, with the rest of the UC capital project staff. Yeah. Now, as far as the public private stuff goes, like it can get like all the, like the Tudor Perini stuff, where it's just like, it's just active corruption and fraud. <laughs> kind of like, it's like, what a broken, I mean, all incentives are, are messed up. Uh, one, one final thing I just want to kind of say, like, it's like you were talking about deed restrictions as being like you can get a lot more float when you have like a big portfolio. And I think that's one of the most exciting things. Like, you know, deed restrictions as far as just kind of like per actual space for, you know, both light tech and inclusionary zoning and so on. But instead, if you actually like are able to like have a fluid ways of, of actually like kind of spreading subsidies to an entire portfolio, you can at once like it's more fluid, less like less segregated and like it doesn't lock people into weird subsidy patterns of like they can't get higher incomes. Like it's it's really it's seems really powerful. Yeah, that, that's actually something that's been that some people, you know, advocates even for social housing have struggled with is that, um, you know, we've been living under basically like the Nixon Reagan neoliberalized version of low income housing since 1973, 1986. Uh, 1973 is when they stopped basically 
Nixon imposed a moratorium on HUD funding. Um, in 1986 is when Reagan introduced or, or signed the low-income housing tax credit into law through the, the IRS tax reform that year. Um, and so, you know, because we've basically farmed out our low-income housing production to the private sector through the tax code, the way that that we've helped the private actors, including the for-profit and the non-profit, um, like tech, like developers and property managers, how we make sure they ensure the affordability is, is saying like every unit has to have a deed restriction for uh, extremely low income, very low income, low income, et cetera. Um, you know what that tool, you know, people quibble with AMIs uh, on particular units and whatnot, but for the most part, it, it does its job of ensuring that private, the private uh, uh, landlords of, um, of these low income units do not, um, unfairly raise their rents. You know, there, there might be some cases where uh, there might be some uh, law rule breaking here and there, but for the most part, that, that's what it's there for. Unfortunately, like as we've kind of had these discussions, emergent social housing in California, a lot of people are still stuck to this idea that we need to deed restrict individual units for public housing. And I had to have conversations with people. So like the deed restrictions are to make sure the private market doesn't raise the rents. It, we don't, necessarily need to deed restrict the units of public housing at the unit level because you know they're publicly owned we make the decision it's not a private actor that makes the decision um, and so i mean in you know, other countries they don't deed restrict public housing units it's a completely foreign concept yeah. so kind of these are the learning the the learning that we have to do as a as a state about how this might work uh, but yeah i i totally agree like the exciting thing is that like uh, if CHA owns 50,000 units or something like that, or, or pick your number, um, they can they can both borrow based off of those rental streams, like so they can get a, a lower borrowing rate uh, from, um, you know, for loans and whatnot. But they also, um, you know, they can adjust, like if, if, the, if there's one building needs more uh, renovation, if it needs uh, more capital improvements or whatever it is, it doesn't need to necessarily float on the the like the cost of that improvement or that investment doesn't need to just be isolated to one particular building. It can kind of flow, as you say, across the portfolio. And we also can see subsidies, right? If we have those market rate units um, within a development, uh, we can, you know, those those market rate subsidies, cross subsidization that can flow into a general pot or can be redirected where it needs to go. It doesn't need to be so hyper kind of dedicated within a particular building. Um, it can be at the neighborhood level, right? Uh, or it could be at the city level. Very, very broadly, it's to simplify stuff. Like just like ultimately it is like overall rents, overall land rents. And like you can really right. divvy it up in powerful ways instead of kind of this weird, you have a million little boxes that you need to like constantly maintain. Like it's like you get a lot more clarity of the big view, but. Uh, right. And then, and, and then like from a, from a regulatory standpoint, like if you're, you know, it's a different type of paperwork or administrative burden, right? Like, we're, you're probably going to have to do a little bit more, um, you know, deciding how you set the rents and how you raise the rents as necessary. You know, you probably have to conceptualize how that, that property managers is going to be different from the light tech, but it also gives a lot more flexibility. And it also, I think will make it easier for, you know, people within CHA developments to, um, you know, you know, as you get older or maybe you have a family, you don't need the studio anymore. 
Um, and you can trade your studio for a two bedroom yeah. or as you, you know, as you need to downsize, as you get older, you can go back to a studio or whatever it is. Uh, you could even potentially imagine like you get a new job and you say you want to, you want to try to rather than join the queue, like say you own a limited equity home in um, Palo Alto and you get a job in San Diego, like imagine like being within that limited equity market uh, it'd be much easier to make that switch, right? Um, to 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 that lubrication in terms of um, if if you want to move to a different building, right? Like that, you're not stuck with that deed restriction because yeah. that's what you know when you when you first entered the lease, that's how much money you made, and you can't earn it anymore. Um, so I think it's an important part of it. Yeah, it it both it both basically adds flexibility and fixes the problem to the private sector. Uh, especially where you regulate in a way like, you know, rent control can really lock people in. Like you could have more flexibility from when you share in this end, but then also like it has much more flexibility, maturity than affordable housing structure we have now. So like it does, it helps both sides of it, but we're, we're getting in the weeds and a lot of stuff and running out of time. So I, I just want to say any, any final, final thoughts, but I think we'll just wrap up. Yeah. I just say like, if you, um, if you are interested in kind of learning more about the, um, you know, AB 2053 and um, the bill itself. If you want to support or, or figure out how you can help out, uh, I'd go to californiasocialhousing.org. Um, and, you know, there's information uh, from, you know, how, like the text of the bill, FAQs, um, learn more about the sponsors and, uh, you know, what's going on with the bills that kind of works its way through the legislature, um, get email updates, check that out. Um, and then, um, you know, look forward to, to more updates um, as we kind of you know, develop this idea and, and get more support. Well, cool. Thanks for having the time and sharing with us. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more uh, interesting news uh, down the pipe. Great. Thanks. Cool. We've been talking to Derek Sagehorn all about social housing, both AB 2053, the paper, California Housing Corporation, the case for a public sector housing developer as well as some UC Berkeley CEQA funny business. You can find links to these things in the show description, and you can find all previous episodes of this radio program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KCSU, Stanford. <laughs>